0: Um, As Joe said, we are doing a series called Foretelling Easter. Um, Here it is. Can you put the first slide for me? That'd be great. Thank you. Um, Looking at key prophetic passages, uh, ancient texts that link specifically to Jesus on the cross. Um, My first photo... Oh, is this working? Hello. Oh, you might have to move it on for me, Mike. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Right. Um, The Romans became experts at brutal murder. They figured out how to kill someone in the most drawn out, the most publicly humiliating, the most painful, and the most excruciating, tortuous way. And it was so shameful that they uh, only saved this method of killing for slaves, disgraced soldiers, foreigners, and political activists, and later on, Christians. They didn't ever kill their own citizens in this way. Um, And they killed thousands and thousands of people this way. At the time of Jesus' death, him being nailed to a cross was really no big deal, historically. He was just one of many, many, many people who Rome had nailed to a cross. It was only after the events of the crucifixion, his remarkable resurrection, his subsequent appearances to his followers, and the way in which they were then transformed, that people started to look back and go, well, hang on a minute that Jesus, there was something about him, perhaps he was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, and perhaps his death on the cross actually has a bigger, more symbolic meaning than just some political you know, enemy of Rome. Um, and obviously, of course, the, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures at the time, were full of references, next slide please, to a promised Messiah figure who would bring salvation, who would bring hope to a Jewish nation in what were extremely dark, times. I've done a very crude timeline here, so you can kind of see roughly what's going on. Um, I've only gone back 2,000 years before Jesus. Um, last week, David spoke about Isaiah 53, coming in about 700 years before Jesus. Today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 22. If you have a Bible or you have it on your phone, I would love you to turn that up and to have it open. We are going to put the words up on the screen as well. But if you, somebody's got a phone anyway, um, you can turn <laughs> If you can have that open, that would be great. Um, because the truth is that as we read the gospel accounts that were written in the first hundred years or so after, mainly focusing on Matthew this morning, in, those, in the years after Jesus, the disciples were looking back at the scriptures and going and, and seeing parallels between what had been written about sent, literally centuries beforehand and then what they've just observed Going on in, in, in the life of Jesus. And so, we, as I said, we're going to, we've looked at Isaiah 53. If you missed Dave's talk last week, you should catch up on YouTube. It's great. And today we're going to look at Psalm 22. There are two key reasons for going through Psalm 22 this morning. The first one is that, as you'll see, it has a massive connection to the crucifixion. Some aspects of Jesus' death seem to have been almost prophesied. 1,000 years before, some details of the, of the death. And even though crucifixion wasn't kind of invented until 500 years before Jesus. So 500 years before that, somebody is writing details that then became, um, be, became what happened to Jesus. And by linking up the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we're doing is, and I've tried to very, very crudely represent it here, is that we're tapping into God's big story. There's an overarching narrative which stretches right back to the beginning of time and is still going on now today, What we're part of, that is God's big story. And we need to understand, if we're going to understand anything about God's big story, it's to understand that, the, that, that Jesus' death on the cross, that we talk about and celebrate every time we have communion and every, every time we come around to Easter and we celebrate Easter, it's not a standalone event. It has this ongoing significance as part of God's relationship with his people. It's so key. So that's the first reason. The second reason we're looking at Psalm 22 today is because even without that connection, the Psalm itself, Psalm 22, has a really huge relevance, relevance for us today. It can teach us some vital lessons in how to navigate the most difficult and painful times whilst also trying to keep our eyes fixed on God. It's a Psalm of lament. The Psalms of Lament give us a template on how to pray when things are going really badly. As they were, as you'll see, for Jesus on the cross. And so if you are struggling today, Psalm 22 has a really key message. Just before we turn to the actual words, a couple of things on the Psalms. Next slide, please. Psalms, the Psalms were Israel's prayer book. These were the prayers and the hymns and the songs and the liturgy that were gathered from centuries of lived experience. Of the people of God. They were intended to be read aloud, quoted, memorized, and set to music, and prayed as part of worship. That's what God's people did thousands of years ago, and it's what they've continued to do since, and it's what we do today. Here's two, just very briefly, here's two examples. Next one, please, Mike. Psalm 103, for example, bless the Lord my soul. And here's a song by Matt Redman that essentially uses those words, bless the Lord. There's another example uh, next one, please. Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my heart come from? And a song by Brian Dirksen that again reflects. So we, uh, we, what we do now for our worship is what um, Jewish people were doing for centuries. It's what Jesus was doing as he grew up. Jesus, as a boy, would have learned and memorized the Psalms. And they would have formed his prayer life. Next slide, please. Growing up. And um, when we, so we read that you know Jesus, as an adult, spent time alone with his Father God praying. I'm pretty sure that you can bet that some of the time he was praying the Psalms. That's what he would have been doing. That's how they prayed. They would be on his mind. The Psalms are poetic. The language in them is metaphorical and symbolic. Some of it's pretty extreme. It's not meant to be taken literally. Do you get it? These are poems. This is not history. Okay, there are books in the Bible which are narrative and which are history. There are books in the, uh, there are books in the Bible um, which are uh, all sorts of things, but the Psalms are poet, poetic. I know they don't read very poetically sometimes, but that's because they've been translated. If you read them in Hebrew, you'll see that there is meter and there is all those things that I don't understand um, to them, um, and they range emotions from extremely happy to really sad. And the Psalms of lament, of which I think it's the biggest part of the Psalms. 60 out of 150 are psalms of lament. And that's where we find the very real prayers, the prayers that don't pull any punches. This is where God's people sing about complaints and grief and sorrow and regret and disappointment. But crucially for all that dramatic and emotive language, the psalms of lament don't stay in a place of lament and misery. Usually. Okay, having expressed their very real pain, these psalms have a a pattern where they press through to reaffirm their trust in God, to cry out for deliverance, to declare assurance and the promise of God's favor and praise. And that's very important. And so next slide, please. Like all types of literature, I realize I'm going fast. We're going to get to the psalm in a second. Like all types of literature, laments have a form. When you read a Psalm of Lament, you will see these elements in it, six elements that usually come. This is from a scholar called Gordon Fee. You see the address, as in who it's been prayed to. You see the complaint, an honest identification of what the trouble is. You see an expression of trust, a cry for deliverance, an assurance that God will deliver, and you see praise. Thanks and praise. And as we go through Psalm 22, please do look out for these key elements. I've put a little box in the side of the slide so you can see which bit we're on, because we're going to read through it all together. But we're not going to go through it all together in one go, because it's quite long. We're going to go in sections, and I'm going to make comments um, at, at, um, after each section. And we're also, by the way, just going to read from some sections of Matthew 27, the account of the crucifixion of Jesus. But why don't you turn up um, Psalm 22, verse 1, um, and next slide please. This is a pretty well-known part of the Bible. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night but I find no rest." This is one of the most well-known, one of the phrases, most, very well-known, one of the phrases directly quoted by Jesus on the cross. If you read Matthew 27, 35, it says, "'From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lema sabachthani,' which means, "'My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? The translators even left it in the original Aramaic language to really make the point. These are some of the most profoundly mysterious words in the entire Bible. They've been debated for centuries. Forsaken, I mean, that's a really strong word. Forsaken, it might imply that God has completely withdrawn his companionship, he's withdrawn his protection, he's withdrawn his support, he's given Jesus up, he's renounced him, he's sacrificed him. Some people think that's what it means. It's extreme, it's dramatic. Some people have used that line as the basis for a whole theological argument about God turning his back on Jesus on the cross. Now, I'm not going there, and I'm not sure about that myself. If set against the rest of the Bible, I'm not not sure that's what's going on here. But that's not what I want to talk about. There is no doubt that Jesus expressing these dramatic words on the cross, in Matthew's account, he's showing us some of the extreme Pain and anguish that Jesus is feeling. I mean, he's already been through crucifixion. You don't need me to tell you how horrendous that is. There's a film made about the crucifixion a few years ago. Um, Mel Gibson made it, and uh, I listened to a film program. Um, the guy who reviews films, he's not a particularly believer, but he calls he said that that film is made like a horror film. I mean, it's so horrendous the way that the thank you the Passion for the Christ, the Christ the way that that crucifixion is depicted there. Is just awful to watch, and it was worse than that. And so there's no doubt that Jesus, having experienced all of this on the cross, is feeling somewhat separated. He's certainly feeling something. He's expressing an incredibly strong emotion. But you and I both know that just because we express a strong emotion, that doesn't always mean at the end of the day, in the big picture of things, that we mean what we're saying. You know... Um, Remember, the Psalms are poetry. It's highly likely that Jesus was feeling that. And some of us have felt forsaken by God at different times. And some of us have felt completely on our own. We have a family story from about 11 years ago when our family moved here to Winchester. And we'd been here about a week. And our kids were all in primary school. And we moved into a house that we were renting for a few months. And we were so grateful for God's provision but it wasn't the nicest house. And obviously, it wasn't ours. And um, I think something had happened that week. It was new schools and getting to grips with relocation. And, and we were just having one of those moments where we were around the table, and, um, and, and everyone was expressing disappointment, sadness. And our Becky, very upset, declared, mum and dad, why did you bring us to this god-forsaken place? <laughs> and we laugh about it now, and we talk about it, and it's one of our family stories. She didn't mean literally that Winchester was God-forsaken. I hope she didn't anyway. <laughs> but, the, but the emotion's very real. And it's interesting that Matthew only quotes the first verse here. But many, many scholars believe that actually this is shorthand. That when, when, Jesus, then when Matthew quotes Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is alluding to the whole psalm. Not just the first verse, the whole psalm. It's shorthand. Certainly, when Matthew's Jewish audience listened to this in, 10 AD, in 90 AD or 100 AD, when they hear those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would immediately go to the whole of Psalm 22. That's what they would think of, because that's what they memorised as kids. That's what Jesus memorized as kids. And we, I think we have to take that into account when we try and understand this passage. You see, I think what's going on here is that Jesus is recalling to mind the prayers that he's learned as a child, and he's praying them out loud in his distress while he's undergoing the most incredible, horrendous, physical, emotional, spiritual pain any human could ever endure. He's turning to words of comfort, words of emotion, words of assurance, see, I think Jesus knew his purpose on earth. It's very clear that he knew he was going to die. He said in John 6, 8, I've come from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He's already gone through this literally the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's questioning God, his father, do I really have to do this? Is there another way? I'm so afraid. And then, as you'll remember, if you've read that passage, he says, except I submit to your purposes, God. It's not my will, but it's yours. There's a quote here from a guy called William Streets. Put the next slide on for me, please. Um, it's one of the th- he says, it's one thing to speak out of a present sense of misery, but another thing to be confident of a never-separated deity, as if God were ever gone. John 16, 3, Jesus says, Yeah, I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I don't think Jesus would have been that surprised to find himself on the cross. I mean, he wouldn't have enjoyed it. But I don't think he'd be blaming God either. I think he knew what he had to endure. But that doesn't mean that that wasn't the most horrendous, difficult and painful experience. Just next slide, thank you. Um, I think there were two reasons why Jesus was quoting Psalm 22 on the cross. One was for comfort. As I said, he was using the language that he learned as a child to express how he was feeling and to guide his prayers. It's a bit like muscle memory. You know, I sat with my nana, who was in her 90s, uh, a day or two before she died. And she asked me to read her some of the Psalms. And, and she was kind of pretty much out of it. And, uh, and she wasn't really conscious. She wasn't really with it. She didn't have a lot of energy. But as I read the words of Psalm 23 to her, I could see her lips moving. Because it just it was in there. A similar thing happened with a lovely, dear old friend of ours, Richard Brammel who um, died a couple of years ago, we went to visit him in his care home, and he, I don't think he even remembered who we were. But when I got my guitar out, and we just played some old, very simple old worship songs, it all just came back. Because I think it's muscle memory. From being, and, and this, you know I was taught the Bible as a kid, I was taught to remember it. A little bit, we've lost that now. But the more we allow God's word to shape us, even in the truths that we sing, Listen to this, this is the preface to a songbook in 1715. It's a songbook for children, it's by Isaac Watts. It's called Divine Songs for Children. But listen to what he writes in his introduction. He's he's arguing why it's a good thing to teach children songs about God. Um, This is about children, but I think this applies to all of us. It says, language is language of 1715. This will be a constant furniture of the minds of children that they may have something to think upon when alone. And sing over to themselves. This may sometimes give their thoughts a divine turn and raise a young meditation. Thus, they will not be forced to seek relief for an emptiness of mind out of the loose and dangerous sonnets of the age. See, there's something about learning stuff. You know, when you learn the truths of God, they come back to you in the times when you need them. And I think there's another reason why Jesus was declaring Psalm 22 on the cross. He's using this narrative to bear witness that there is a reason for his suffering, that there is a kingdom purpose, that his death is part of God's bigger plan and bigger purpose for salvation, that somehow through his own excruciating pain, God is going to bring something really good out of all of this. I don't believe he was challenging his suffering. I think he was commentating on it. I don't think he was complaining. I think he was confirming and comforting himself. Now, I realize I've spent a long time talking about the first bit, and I'm not going to spend that long talking about all of the bits. But let's move through to the next slide, please. And let's read verses 3 to 5. Because that complaint of his is quickly, quite quickly, followed up by um, an expression of trust. Yet, verse 3, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. God, you have a history of saving your people. When previous generations were in trouble, you rescued them. And Israel always, always looking back in, in, the, in, the, in their story to the exodus, to when God brought them out of slavery in Egypt and, and miraculously across the Red Sea and, and provided for them through the desert. That's true for them and it was true for us as well. I look back to times in our community when God helped us, when He rescued us. You know, in COVID, God, you were there for us. When we lacked faith and we needed resources, you delivered us. That's part of our story. God is a God who can be trusted because it's in our story. And part of that whole deal with lamenting the, 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 the very real pain and circumstances that we're in now, is that also turning and saying, but remember when we were struggling before God and you were there for us. You are someone who can be trusted. I have a folder in my emails, in my email inbox called encouragement. And whenever anybody sends me an email about something that's positive or something that God is doing or something that they've enjoyed or whatever, then I just put it into that folder. And if I'm ever lacking encouragement guess what? Go and read it. Very simple. That's not, the, uh, that's not the end of the complaint though. Next slide please. Verse six. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Well, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. It's a great quote here from another great preacher called Charles Spurgeon. Next slide. Jesus felt himself to be comparable to a helpless, powerless, downtrodden worm. Passive while crushed and unnoticed and despised by those who trod on him. And then I love this line. What a contrast between I am and I am a worm. (laughs) I just love that. You know? verse Next slide. Verse 6, verse 7 and 8. The insults and the mocking that the Psalmist has written a 1,000 years before are also reflected in the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Back to Matthew 27. I'll read it, but you look and see how the phrases come up in here. Um, This is Matthew 27, 39. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priest, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And so again, what you're hearing, what you're seeing is the words of this psalm written a thousand years before, lived out, born out in the life of Jesus, where he's being mocked, Publicly humiliated, scorned. This is real stuff, isn't it? It's real and it's raw and it's honest. And it's a moment of complaint. And again, excuse me, <coughs> it's followed up by a moment of trust. Verse 9. Next slide, please. Yet you brought me out of the womb, you made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you, from my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help. Notice how in the first trust episode, back in verses 3 to 5, Jesus, the, the psalmist was talking about how God had been with Israel, how he'd looked after them as a nation. It's kind of corporate, and now he's making it really personal. He says, this is about me. You've been with me since birth. You've cared for me all my life. God, you've been so close to me all my life. Don't desert me now. Stay close. He makes it into a prayer. I don't know how you pray when you're having a difficult time. I have a journal. I tend to write my prayers down because I find that the process of of documenting my feelings helps me to think about what's going on and to process it and capturing What God has done as well is really important. (laughs) And I tend to go between, this is really difficult, but Lord, I'm trusting you. It's so important to remember and celebrate what God's done in our lives. And it's so important to be real about how we're feeling. And again, in this example, in this psalm, verse 12, he flips back to the emotional language. And it gets pretty heavy here. Many bulls surround me. Next slide, please, Mike. Many bulls surround me. The strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. That's a kind of polite way of translating that phrase. He's basically saying my, entire, my guts are turning, to, turning liquid. It's basically what he's saying. You know? And then the next slide, um, 15. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd, I had to look it up. It's a broken piece of ceramic, you know, dug up from the soil. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Remember, this was written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. And this guy, we think it's David, by the way, who wrote this psalm, and we think he wrote it just in one of those times when he was in battle and fleeing from the enemy and got everything going on all around him. But he is really feeling it now, isn't he? I mean, this is the extreme language. His enemies are described as bulls, lions, and dogs. Okay? And then you, you can, it's, it's obvious when I, you, you can see for yourself, verse 16, they pierce my hands and my feet. Remember, crucifixion hadn't been invented. They divide my clothes and cast lots around them. directly quoted in Matthew 27, 35. When they crucified Jesus, they divided up his clothes and cast lots. And so it goes like this, up and down, back and forth. That's what laments do. That's what the Psalms of laments do. They do it because isn't it true that that's what real life does? Isn't that what real life is like? You know, we have a great day and then we have a harder day. You know? This guy's, trying to, sort of, this guy's trying, to, trying to express the pain that he's feeling, and he's also trying to look to God, even though it's difficult. I think that's important, because one thing that we don't want to do is deny the pain that we're feeling. I mean, that's just going to store up all kinds of bigger problems for the future. Somebody said this, the inability to discuss the real pains of regular life silences many. If we can't talk about what's going on somewhere or express it somewhere, we're going to be in even more trouble. That's what the last—that's what our last series changes that heal was all about. About dealing with our emotions and learning how to bring them to God. We live in this tension. We have to be real about what's happening, and yet at the same time, we have to remind ourselves that God is with us. So, the best example I can think of it is—it's like a seesaw. You know, it's a little like a seesaw. We need to, we're trying to stay in balance and sometimes we're going one way and sometimes we're going the other way. And by the way, if you are going through a difficult time right now, if you are struggling, if you are suffering and you don't know how to pray, then a really good way to do it is just to borrow someone else's prayers. Borrow some Psalms from the Bible and read through them. We have a book, there's a picture of it actually, um, that somebody gave us. It's called Seeking God's Face. I looked it up, I think it costs about 20 quid. It's readings for the whole year And it just has a little bit of a a psalm and a little bit of another passage. And it's literally just a way to pray the psalms. Joe and I use that. Another thing you could do is use this app, Lectio 365, which is, again, another way of praying through the psalms. Again, in verse 19, he turns to prayer. Next slide, please. But you, Lord, don't be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. And then there's a prayer of deliverance. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. This is purely and simply a prayer of deliverance. Save me, God. Whatever situation we are in, whatever is going on, we can always call out for help. We can always do that. He's a good God. He's a good father. As Hugh Cryer used to say to us in this church, he's in a good mood. He's got good gifts to give. He loves his children. He's not out to get us. He's not out to catch us out. He's not out to find us out misbehaving or exert his control over us. One of my favorite old songs is a song by Van Morrison. Whenever God shines his light on me, he lifts me up. He turns me around. He sets my feet on higher ground. It's a direct quote from Psalm 40, actually. It's another psalm, Psalm 30. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And the truth is sometimes the night is very long, isn't it? Sometimes the night is very long. But joy will come. And if that's your story, we're going to take communion in just a few moments. And I want you to know that if you are in a night period of your life where you are just... Struggling and trying to stand and trying to keep your eyes on God because life is just really difficult, then we are with you. God is with you, we are with you, and we'd love to pray for you and stand with you today. He's a God of deliverance, and that prayer of deliverance is followed by a prayer of assurance, a declaration of assurance and praise. Let's finish this psalm off. Verse 22 I will declare your name. To my people in the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Look at verse 24 again. Look at verse 24. It's a key verse of assurance. He has heard our prayer. He has heard my prayer He does not, he, he, I am assured that he has heard my prayer. Can you sense the mood in this psalm shifting? Can you sense hope being renewed? This psalmist is looking beyond his present day situation to God's big story and a glorious future. In fact, so much hope that he spends the last six six or eight, seven or eight verses of the psalm just doing a whole big song of praise. So from verse 25, next slide. From you comes the, the theme of praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Next slide. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. It's relentless, isn't it? They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Which is almost the same as, it is finished. Which is what also Jesus said on the cross that we read in a different, a different, um, a, a different account. I mean, it's a very different idea, isn't it? If you think about this idea, Jesus is on the cross, and the last thing he says is, why have you forsaken me, God? I'm all alone and it's brutal and harsh. I mean, that's one narrative. Or there's the narrative where Jesus is on the cross saying, why have you forsaken me, God? Yes, it's tough. Yes, I'm suffering. But remembering, praying through Psalm 22, you are somebody who can be trusted. Come, deliver me. And look, I'm hopeful of the future. And look, declaring to a people yet unborn, generations not to be told, he has done it. The kingdom is coming. That's a whole different message, a whole different narrative. There's confidence in there, confidence that God's going to answer his prayer, confidence that he's going to be able to join in God's people in worship again, confidence in a glorious future. As somebody once said, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. That's what Jesus is talking about on the cross. And our personal trials and challenges, yeah, they don't happen in a vacuum. You might be having the worst time ever. And if you are, then I'm really sorry. And if we don't know about it, I'd love to hear about it. And I want to stand with you. But they, our troubles and our, and our sufferings happen in the context of God's big story. One day, one day, we're going to look back and smile and say, God was with me. It was hard, it was brutal. I learned some hard lessons. It didn't turn out as I expected, but God was with me. And that's the tension that we're living in as we read through and pray through these Psalms. So it's okay to be emotional, Jesus was emotional. Be real. That's a particular message for the blokes here. Okay? So easy, isn't it, guys, to kind of go, oh, yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm all right. And here's Jesus on the cross going, oh, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hasn't abandoned us. I, um... No, let's not go there. I haven't got time. Uh... (laughs) I, I, tried to, I misquoted this a few weeks ago, and somebody helped me out. Everything will be okay in the end, and if it's not okay, then it's not the end. I don't think that's very biblical, but it's quite trivial. But it feels like it's an appropriate message, because I think that's what God is saying here. That's what this whole point is. You know, we are not done yet. We are not done yet. Um, this question to ask ourselves before we go into communion. If Jesus was prepared to go through that much suffering that kind of pain, that kind of heartache, then why was he prepared to do it? Have you asked yourself this question? He knew why he was on the cross. Do we know why he was on the cross? Romans 3.23 says, 22, since we've compiled this, oh actually I've got this up on the screen, do you want to just put the last slide up? Since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, and prove that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us. God did it for us out of sheer generosity. He put us in right standing with Himself—a pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where we oh, He always wanted us to be. And He did it by the means of Jesus Christ. And if we believe that, then we need to do something about that. Just like David challenged us last week. And I wonder if sometimes we forget to marvel at the truths of the crucifixion. And and maybe we just kind of get a bit over familiar with this story. And yet this is what Jesus did. Why don't you stand with me?